Hello and welcome to the Lost Boys Podcast. I'm Tandy, joined by Harlan Fear. Say hi, Harlan. Hi, Harlan. On today's episode of the Lost Boys Podcast, we're going to discuss all of the previews so far from Chapter 2 of Disney's Lorcana, Rise of the Floodborne. Harlan, have you seen these cards yet? Are you going to be watching them for the first time today? I decided that it would be best for me to be like the audience and see them for the first time today. Awesome. Awesome. So uh, we're not going to do that just yet. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we got going on in the competitive Lorcana scene. Uh, I know last week we played uh, some heads up on Pixelborn. You were uh, head over heels about your Amber Steel mid-range deck, and you beat the living crap out of me. How's that going? Good, good. It's actually Amethyst Steel. That one always trips oh me my up, God. too. I know, Amber and Amethyst. It's Third time it's, I've done that in my brain. Yeah, it's it's also really annoying just when I'm like building a deck and naming it because the first two letters are the same also. So you have to get to the third letter to distinguish them. Yeah. Um not, yeah, a, so I, <laughs> not great planning ahead. on their part, I guess, about how to how yeah, to Yeah, that short one's a little stuff. a little tricky on that one. Um but yeah, I still do really like the deck. It's really good against Ruby Amethyst. Um I actually have been working on other decks since because I've kind of, you know, tweaked that one to a point where I'm pretty happy with and I know it really well. And uh, this week, everybody has just been playing uh, Surfer Stitch, the seven-cost stitch. Oh, yeah. And not only is that good as a strategy, just against Amethyst decks in general, playing to the board and having cards that generate card advantage while playing to the board to keep up, but also, I don't know if you've played a Steel deck versus a 4-8, but that's a chonky boy. Yeah, uh, I have played Steel against a lot of high willpower characters. And, you know, my Blasting Cannon or Fire the Cannons, my Tinkerbells, my uh, Grab Your Sword, they don't look quite nearly as good against those as they do against oh, one man of Lilo making a wish. Yeah, exactly. And it's not even that it's like you can grind through a 4 8 pretty easily, especially when you're drawing a bunch of cards in your head. The problem is that. Their 4-8 came down while they already had two characters in play. And then they also drew two cards. So, like, I have to give up a bunch of board presence and advantage just to get rid of this 4-8, the quest for two. And then I am behind almost immediately. Not to mention that another issue that I've been running into is because my my deck is so much more character-based than Ruby Amethyst, I end up accidentally setting up their Rapunzel's way more frequently, and it's a lot harder for me to control that than it is when I play Ruby Amethyst. No, for sure. Uh, Rapunzel is an extremely powerful card in the mid-range Amber strategies. My emphasis has been so far on a much lower-to-the-ground iteration of the Amber decks, uh, focal point of Stitch Rockstar, but the Rapunzel into Surf and Stitch has been quite strong against those uh, Ruby Amethyst control decks that we've been seeing all over the place. Yeah, absolutely. The um, I personally have not super jived with the hyper-aggressive decks. I don't know if it's just the mulliganing system, I feel like, is less suited for finding like hyper-aggressive lines versus just finding functionality for several turns. Yeah. Um, but I just... I haven't super been in love with those hyper aggressive decks. Um, I do enjoy playing more longer, more complicated games, so that might also be the reason. Um, I do think that the you know whole new world style Stitch Rockstar decks are actually better against 
Ruby Amethyst specifically than the Surface Stitch builds. Um, like I was mentioning before, it's pretty easy for Ruby to play around Rapunzel and Surface Stitch. Yeah, I think that they do a great job of keeping the board clean. Uh, things like Maui really punish you for playing those like mid-range characters with very low willpower. Uh, and, you know, I, I just think that Stitch Rockstar just allows you to force a be prepared over and over again until the time comes. But as you said, against the Steel Decks, the Rapunzel's and the 7-Drop Stitch, uh, both extremely good. Um, other than that, I, I know that you've been tinkering with the idea of playing some Ruby Amethyst Control yourself. I know that there's some secret tech you don't want to give away, but what's your general thoughts about that deck, and uh, what do you think the odds are you actually play it at the Invitational? Yeah, so um, I do think that it is just the best deck in the in the format of this first chapter of Lorcana. Um, I think that's pretty obvious to everybody at this point with all the results we've gotten from the previous 1Ks and 1.5Ks and stuff that Ruby Amethyst has been like 50% of those top eights so far. And that is just outrageous. Um, us coming from other previous card games, that's where, you know, there would definitely be a banning happening. Um, but, you know, it's we're in the first chapter. The that. new set's on the way. Exactly. Um so, you know, we're just dealing with it. And I do have the Invitational coming up, hosted by, you know, us and Apex Gaming and TCG Player. And it is definitely on my mind that I could just play that deck versus, you know, my Amethyst Steel deck that I do think is very good against that best deck. But there's something to be said for playing the best deck, and it's the best deck for a reason. You're pretty good against everybody. Yeah, it's just very hard to actually win the game against them. Not only do they have the only real sweeper in the format would be prepared, but a lot of their cards are geared towards stealing lore from your opponent, and so it's like kind of hard to race them sometimes, too, because of things like Ursula, both of the Aladdins. Yeah, absolutely. The thing that really is kind of making me shy away from it um, is the, the mirror match of playing against another player playing Ruby Amethyst. And while that is mitigated a lot by the specific tournament structure we're using for the Invitational, where we won't have time limits on the rounds. Um, that's actually something that comes up a lot in these smaller tournaments, where there's a Ruby Amethyst mirror, and it ends up in a draw, because the games go for a long time. But at the same time, when both people know there isn't a time limit, I played last night on Pixelborn, you know, I decided to fire up I built like a new build of Ruby Amethyst. I decided to fire up a game and I was like, perfect. I'll play one game before bed. And of course I queued into a mirror and it literally took an hour for best of one. So That's I don't something. know if I, I don't know if I have the fortitude anymore as somebody who's kind of retired a little bit to play, you retired. know, three We're hour just long up. games. Yeah, here's the thing. Uh, we we talked a lot uh, before before Robinsberger and Disney's Wakanda gave us uh, direction for the tournaments. I actually think best of one is going to end up being the superior tournament format. And uh, until there are something like sideboards uh, added into the game or just some reason why you think that, you know, we should be playing best of three instead of best of one. In other games, like... 
best of one has started to become way more normal. But in, in Magic the Gathering, where we're coming from, best of three is considered to be the standard. Um, I don't think that games of Lorcana end as quickly as games of Magic the Gathering. For one, uh, the, the way that the characters scale in Magic, you know, if your, your creature that you play has four power, that means it's going to be attacking for one-fifth of your opponent's life total because they start at 20. In Lorcana, all that's really well balanced by the characters being larger stats, but having smaller amounts of lore that they can quest for. And it takes a significantly longer amount of time, most of the time, to to gain 20 lore than it does to deal 20 damage to, the, to your opponent in Magic. And so... I I personally believe the best of one will be what we end up doing next year. But for this marquee event, for this first tournament, we're following the guidelines. We're doing what they tell us to do. And then once we see if things just are breaking and falling apart, we're going to change it up. We're going to switch it up. And I think best of one could be the answer. Yeah, so I think um, I'm a little bit on both sides of this, where I think both have their merits, best of one and best of three. So I think for you know, your normal standard type tournament where you just show up and you're playing your deck against your opponent. I think best of three is actually really good because that first game is a complete mystery where I run into it a lot when I'm, you know, playtesting on ladder versus, you know, doing some focus testing with the people I'm working with for the invitational is I don't know what my opponent is playing. And that drastically changes how I mulligan it drastically changes what I'm inking early, what I'm trying to hold on to for those first few turns. And that can like change the dynamic of that game by a huge amount. And that is also the only game I play on ladder, right? Where no, that's in a fair. normal tournament, yeah. in best of three, where it's hidden information, that first game can be a bit of a crapshoot depending on what you're playing. And so I think best of three is really good for you know leveling that out. But for a tournament like the Invitational, I think it would have been really good to do best of one because it's open information. We have open deck lists. I know exactly what my opponent's deck looks like. They know exactly what mine looks like. You can have that plan completely formulated from your opening hand. No, I, I think that's a great point. And um, I I think that one of the solves is having open deck lists for every event. If we create a culture where, you know, at the beginning of the event, you just have like a paper copy of your deck list. The beginning of the round, you just hand it to your opponent and vice versa. I think that that would be super good. Also, you could just do something like show your opponent the two colors that you're playing in your deck so that they have a better idea, right? You can have like things that you're like allowed to show, like show them any one drops you have or whatever, right? Like show them one, a one drop of each color if you have them or, you know, the lowest cost card of each color. If you, I don't know. There, there's ways around it. And I, but I agree. I, I think that best of three, perhaps not well suited for this game, specifically because games just last longer. And getting to uh, three games finished in a Ruby Amethyst mirror in first set uh, constructed is just not always doable. And it's not even doable in one game sometimes with your years last night. And I know for a fact that part of that is because of uh, Magic Mirror. And in the in the Ruby Amethyst Mirror, there's no way to check your opponent's Amethyst. Uh, so your opponent's Magic Mirror, which means that whoever plays it earliest and starts using it the most and doesn't lose the game by doing so is going to have a huge advantage. And the fact that there's no maximum hand size means that you don't have to physically play any of the cards from your hand until you're reacting to what your opponent is doing. 
Maybe that changes in the next set. There is, uh, you know, one of those new items that can gain lore. We're going to be talking about that today. Have you seen this card? Not yet. Not okay, yet. that might change how you think about the matchup going forward because that card seems pretty sweet. Anyway, um, long story short, best of one could be the future. For now, we're going to stick with best of three. If it's a nightmare, which I think it will be in some spots, we're going to do stuff about it. But we're going to follow Ravensburger's guidelines as best we can while we, you know, at the beginning. So. Uh, all right. Other than that, you know, do you have anything about the competitive metagame that you've seen that you've been liking? Any deck that you've been testing out other than uh, Ruby Amethyst or the uh, Steel uh, Amethyst deck that you beat me with last week? Yeah, absolutely. So I have been obviously getting beat up on by Surfer Stitch um, with my Amethyst Steel deck, which kind of made me switch. Um, and that led me down a path of trying to build the best Surfer Stitch deck. Okay, right? and okay. so I tried it with pretty much every color uh, pair possible, um, and kind of what I was finding was you're really good against steel decks because Surfer Stitch is just so incredible, Rapunzel's so incredible, um, but you end up kind of struggling against aggressive decks unless you are specifically steel. Okay, and then do you if, think Amber Steel mid range is like the place to be? So that is my, what I found to be the best version of uh surfer stitch decks okay um the problem is that deck specifically kind of i feel like doesn't actually excel versus ruby amethyst okay that's the problem then right you get it's just the exactly. step it's the step ladder so ruby amethyst squishes your uh amber steel mid-range but amber steel mid-range squishes everything else in aggro and then aggro sometimes squishes ruby amethyst because they don't have a cheap sweeper it all costs seven yep and the the problem is it's all it's a rock paper scissors but it's weighted a little bit and the okay. ruby amethyst is you know it's it's rock but it's like rock plus so okay it, you nothing know, it, beats it, rock exactly nothing <laughs> beats rock like you might be good against it but it's not good enough that you always beat it yeah. And the problem is that it is good enough to beat everything and is ahead in most places. Um, another kind of layer to this, a wrinkle I found was one of the Surfer Stitch decks I did like was actually Sapphire. The problem with Sapphire Amber is you are really bad if your opponent has any kind of aggressive draw. Because yeah? you have no rush characters, you have no way to exert their characters, you do have Let It Go and Hades but you don't have a catch-up mechanic. You Those have are to just really be... bad against one-drops. Exactly. Yeah. You have to be playing from ahead or even to get ahead. And then you also actually, in those color pairs, Simba is a really good two-drop that we've seen, right? Mm -hmm. But it's really good when you're being the aggressor. It's not a very good attacker. Yeah, it, it, says, it literally says bodyguard on the card, but it's only exactly. bodyguarding characters. It's not bodyguarding your life total. Right, so then you end up in this situation where you can't fall behind early, but you also don't have the best ways to stay on yep. par early. No Rafikis, you know, no you Sweepers, don't have Hook. no Gastons, yep. no uh, what's the no Maui Hero to All. These are all the reasons why the Ruby Amethyst deck is is king. Exactly, and so that deck actually was the thing that really sent me reeling on my whole expedition with Am Amethyst Steel was that I just kept running into this Amber Sapphire deck and 
I just couldn't win. I went like oh five <laughs> against it. Nice. It, like, was it the was same person so like over and over things. again? I think just... I think it was the same. It's really hard to tell on Pixelborn because if they aren't a uh, Patreon, they just have like Pixelborn and then a series of numbers and letters. I see. Um, so it's a little bit harder to track. But it felt like three of them were like back to back to back, like immediate recues. So I think it could have been the same person. Sure. But I was just getting farmed, and so I of course started working on the deck and playing with it. And, you know, I was farming anyone doing anything like me. And then everything else I was just getting tranced by. So, you know, it, that's one that I have back in my pocket. Just, you know, if going into the Invitational, I feel like the metagame is going to line up a certain way. I can pull it out. But, yeah, it's uh, it's not good to be not good at playing early and then can't play from behind. Yeah, but it's tough stuff. You draw a lot of cards and play a lot of big characters, though. So it's fun. All right, well, uh, if you would like to know where you can play Disney's Lorcana, you can play it online right now on Pixelborn. And we're going to have a link to the Pixelborn Discord in our show notes. We usually do because we do use that program quite a bit. But if you're looking to play some live Lorcana, we have a couple of events coming up for you over the next few weeks. This weekend on September 30th at the Apex Gaming Home Store in Caldwell, Ohio, we're going to have a $2,000 invitational qualifier. It's $2,000 total in cash and prizes. Uh, or sorry, $2,000 in cash to be given away. And then uh, the winner of that event will qualify for our $5,000 Invitational that's going to be held on the October 20th weekend. We're also going to be doing uh, an Invitational Qualifier on October the 14th. That's going to be the same thing, a $2,000 event where first place qualifies for the Invitational. And then on October 20th, that Friday, at the Apex Gaming Home Store in Caldwell, Ohio, we're going to be doing Last Chance Qualifiers for the Invitational. We're going to be running two of those, and so we're going to be giving four invites away to the Invitational, as well as our 12 invited guests, and they're going to be battling it out for the championship. Uh, if you need any more information on that, just make sure to follow our Twitter. We're Lost Boys LOR. Uh, and we're going to be tweeting about it a lot over the next uh, few weeks. And we're going to be doing commentary on those events uh, as they are played live. So that's what you got to look forward to. Uh, all right. So, Harlan, uh, moving on, I want to talk about something that you haven't really interacted with yet. And that is Chapter 2 of Disney's Lorcana, Rise of the Floodborne. Are you ready? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I got it open on... on uh my screen here. Okay, I did a video uh, last week where I went over all the cards, but I want to hear your thoughts, and I want to talk to somebody about them that's not just me rambling for 15 minutes while I give these cards a cursory glance. Uh, so we're going to go in order. Uh, we're going to start in Amber, and we're going to look at Mickey Mouse Friendly Face. So why don't you tell me about Mickey Mouse Friendly Face? What do you think about this card? Yeah, so let's just start at the top. We have a six-cost inkable Mickey Mouse. It's a one strength, six willpower, quest for three lore, which is quite a lot. And then uh, glad you're here. Whenever this character quests, you may pay three less for the next character you play this turn. Yeah, big cost reduction effect there for uh, just questing for three. I think that for a six cost character, only having one strength is not desirable. But that's a really powerful ability. Yeah, so the, this card reminds me slightly of Moana. Pretty similar stat line. You know, yep. Moana's a five cost, one six, also quest for three. Um, this Mickey, I do think, is substantially more powerful than Moana. Sure. Um, I actually think this Mickey could be really good 
in these kind of, you know, surfer stitch decks. Those decks actually do want some more high quest threats. Um, that's one of the things that those decks have kind of struggled with is to have something that quests for a yeah, whole lot. Just closing the game is difficult sometimes. Yeah, and also to be far enough ahead when you're pressing your advantage, you know, that's something they can struggle with. You do have a lot of two questers, but, you know, three is a whole another ballgame. And then also those decks end up with kind of a glut of characters that kind of, you know, you're trying to play a seven drop and, you know, you're an amber mid-range deck, so you have a lot of Rapunzel's and four-cost Hades. So it can be kind of tricky to, you know, quote-unquote double spell like we did, like we would do in Magic. This Mickey makes that very easy where you can, you know, you play your Mickey on six, you quest with it on seven, you play your seventh ink, and now you can play 10 cost of characters, which is huge. I mean, especially huge huge advantage. Right. And especially when you're trying to play a carefree surfer stitch where you really need a second character on the table already before you play the stitch. And this allows for you to do that while starting from essentially a dry board on the previous turn. Yeah, exactly. You only need to untap with one character in this Mickey, and then you can, you know, get your seventh ink, play a three drop, and play your and your your server stitch, and then you're off to the races. Yeah. All right. Uh, moving on to the next one, we have the Queen Commanding Presence. Uh, this is going to be a five cost inkable four three with a quest for two. Has shift two, which means you can play it on other copies of the queen. And then it has who's the fairest whenever this character quests. Chosen opposing character gets minus four strength this turn. And chosen character gets plus four strength this turn. So you shrink their thing. You grow your thing. Generally, that means you're going to be eating up their thing. Yeah, so uh, playing a lot recently with the like the Sapphire Amber deck, you know, really the only way you have to kind of win combats in quotes and get ahead is the support mechanic right and this card is like the support mechanic on steroids yeah this this is turbo support you know not only are you buffing your thing like crazy with plus four shrinking your opponent's characters makes combat significantly better and what it really does it doesn't actually do what it says right it actually just says your opponent can't quest unless they want their character to die you know, yeah, that that's absolutely. the that's the subtext. And when when you have cards like this, you know, they're often so powerful when they're in play that them being in play is the threat and not what the card actually does. Because if you're playing into it, that usually means that you've already won the game or are about to win the game because you're essentially sacrificing this piece, you know, to the queen's ability in order to to just get ahead. And like you have to kind of ignore it. Yeah, I think what a lot of people will get kind of walked into when the second chapter first comes out is that oh yeah like i can quest with all my things and then you know they'll minus four my thing plus four their thing and eat my thing and it's like while that is what will happen (laughs) typically yeah a lot of the times when you just quest all out what's actually going to happen is that they're going to minus four your one thing and plus four their thing that's going to send into your other thing and trade for it up and then they're going to eat your thing with another thing and yeah, well, two things they're gonna send three. They're gonna send three goons at your biggest thing that has minus four strength. Yeah, exactly. And then their their fourth goon that's just sitting around is gonna eat your your six toughness or right. your six willpower character. And yeah, I, I think this card has a lot of promise. 
Um, I think I just I love personally that it's inkable, and I, I think that you know it, it's not talked about enough. I think there's a huge uh, glut of cards in Emerald that are powerful but non-inkable, and that actually creates a lot of tension in deck building with a second color because you have to be very light on your inclusions of non-inkables. And so every time a card looks pretty good and is also inkable, that's just like a slam dunk. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think this card. Um, I'm really excited to see other options for what we can shift this onto. It yes. being shift two, you know, in my brain makes me think that they're going to make a one cost queen. Maybe. I mean, um, it, it, may- it might just be that you upgrade your three cost and you get to, you know, play two things in a turn when you shift this. Yeah, I mean, every everything that has shift has futures, right? And the yep. futures are all just like... This card could be really good in a year, or this card could be really good next set. And that one with a dynamite ability when it quests, you know, to shrink your opponent's thing and to grow your thing. Uh, I think that that with shift just means that any future queen that costs one or two is just going to be gangbusters. Yeah. And kind of what I alluded to, too, is even if it's a three or four cost queen, this card is likely probably still going to be an upgrade either on stats or on your, your lore count. But also just being able to, you know, do that, even basically considering that this is like an action for the cost of yeah. two when you shift it, that's it's a pretty good rate for that action. Mm-hmm. It's actually it's a great rate compared to, you know, the actions we currently have from chapter one. Um, and yeah, I think that could just lead to this card being great anyway, because that's a really powerful effect for two ink. And then you can still play another character to the board and develop further that turn, even if, you know, you don't get to have like a really cheap, efficient queen to set this up. Yeah, the fact that it shifts for so cheaply compared, like almost all the other shifts are essentially minus two on the ink. And this one is minus three on the ink. And so basically this is just a nod to there's not that many cheap versions of the queen. And I think right now there's just the five cost queen from Amethyst, right? Exactly, yeah. Okay, yeah, so hopefully at some point we get a two or three cost queen, uh, and then this shift is going to be pretty good. All right, next up, we're going to be moving on to a very powerful song. This is Zero to Hero. Why don't you read it off for us? Yeah, so we have two cost, uninkable. Very important to remember. It's a song, so you can sing it with your two cost characters. Count the number of characters you have in play. You may pay that amount of cost less for the next character you play this turn. Yeah. it's It's a bit like a ritual. Um, I still, I'm typically honestly kind of bad at evaluating these types of cards. Um, I don't know what it is, like my hangups with, you know, ritual type effects and thinking in the most broken sense, I guess maybe I'm too much of a fair player. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you're the, you're the, my ink and my five drop. I am a spray and pray guy and you're a curve guy. And I Mm -hmm. love playing decks where I play three, one drops in the first two turns. Whereas you have primarily played these like grueling mid-range trading back and forth matchups. And Zero to Hero, I think, is going to be ridiculous in these. uh, It's like really low to the ground, uh, Ariel Singer, whole new world decks. This is the song that they needed, I think, to really make Ariel better and to just make the deck more explosive. And what this card basically does is that on turn three or four, you're just going to gain access to a free character and in this game characters are the you know dividing force and if you 
build your deck with enough characters that cost two, three, and four. So the zero to hero is essentially just lets you play a character for free. That's incredible. And then when you start combining this with things like Stitch Rockstar, you get to do the big shift turn like ahead of schedule sometimes and for free, which puts your opponent so far behind that I don't know if they're going to have any recourse to get back into the game. Now, that said, this is not inkable, right? That's a huge deal. And sometimes if your opponent's checking all your early characters, this thing's not going to do anything. And so I would only really recommend playing this in a deck that is constantly refreshing its resources via Stitch Rockstar, via Whole New World, via Hades, or drop Hades to get stuff back from the graveyard. Um, that's where I see this card really shining in the Lilo Wish Upon a Star type decks. Yeah. So for fear of sounding like a broken record, I'm going to ask you a question. Yeah, please. Do you think this card could facilitate playing Surfer Stitch in your spam aggressive decks? You know, maybe. And I actually had two Surfer Stitch in my original spam deck, and it was never castable. I just never got to the point where I wanted seven lore because, you know, I was uh, singing Whole New World with Ariel and just like playing all my stuff after turn five instead of inking anything. And so it just became rare that I actually did anything with Carefree Surfer other than ink it. And so it just kind of got stuck in my hand a bunch. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. And I, I think the way you can kind of plan to facilitate a card like that is Lantern, like we talked about last week. Yes, I do like but, Lantern, but I don't know if you can play Lantern in this card. Exactly. In the same this card, Zero to Hero and Lantern are going to have a lot of tension with each other. They're in the same, you know, cost slot. They're both uninkable. They do very similar things, albeit in, you know, different regards. So I've played with uh, Just in Time a couple times already, and mm-hmm. pu- putting in a five drop ahead of schedule is very strong in some spots. Uh, This card, I think, is going to be similar in how it functions in your deck. And there were plenty of times where Justin Time got stuck in my hand and didn't do anything. At the very least, Zero to Hero can just be sung pretty early on with something like Simba to just kind of generate effectively two ink so that you can continue to play things early on, especially when Simba isn't questing. And when it's only questing for one, you just want to find as many ways as you can to use it usefully. And there's a, a two-cost song that I already play. I can't even remember. Be, be, our, Be guest. our Guest. Yeah. And then now Zero to Hero gives us even more to do with it. And I think just finding ways for your best card to continually have uses is good. Yeah, I also think that uh, additional songs just to up your song count for Ariel is really good. Yeah, you know, I'm hesitant to play more than 12 personally, but that's whatever. It's oh, like really? I've been I've been going back and forth with people on it. I, I don't even care if I miss because I'm just refueling my hand next turn with whole new world. People like oh, the only people who can really interact with Ariel early are people who play Smash in Steel. And everyone else just has to let it be. And so when I miss, if I have a whole new world in my hand, I don't really care because that card was just gonna go to the inkwell or be shuffled back into the deck anyway. Or put it, you know, put it in the graveyard and draw seven. Yeah, that's that's interesting. Um, I do quickly before we move on. I want to kind of compare Zero to Hero and uh, Just in Time. Sure. Just because I think a lot of people on a baseline would like those two are the real comparisons, right? Where I think this card is way closer to Lantern and goes into decks that Lantern would go in. Yes. Where I do not think this card and Just in Time actually fit the same decks or roles in those decks. Where, you know, zero to hero, you want to be in a go wide strategy just like your deck, 
where you know you spam one and two cost characters where just in time you really actually want to be in kind of more of a mid-rangey deck where you know you're putting in a Cusco or a Mad Hatter something where you're maximizing those five drops and right. you really want to be curving versus dumping and then playing one extra big thing. Yeah. All right. Uh, next up, we're going to be looking at Elsa Gloves Off. Elsa Gloves Off is a four cost inkable amethyst character. It's a three, four It quests for one lore and it has challenger three, a pretty generic version of Elsa. And we already have a four cost Elsa in amethyst that doesn't have uh, bad stats. It's a four, four quest for one. And this one is just a 3-4 that has Challenger 3. I think this one might be an upgrade. What do you think? Yeah, I, I certainly would say it is an upgrade just based on how games go typically. Um, I think both of them are kind of going to be relegated to more of, you know, uh, limited or maybe if you are really focused on maybe playing like a turbo shift Elsa deck where yeah. you shift the big Elsa onto them. Um, I think that's another cool way you can do that. Um, this card definitely facilitates that a bit by being a very reasonable body. Um, but yeah, I think Challenger 3 is definitely better than the extra one point of strength, for sure. All right, uh, next up, we're going to be moving on to Merlin Shapeshifter. Why don't you give us a rundown of Merlin Shapeshifter? Yeah, so Merlin cost 4, is inkable, has 1 strength and 5 willpower, and then quest for 1. Uh, he has Battle of Wits. Whenever one of your other characters is returned to your hand from play, this character gets plus one lore this turn. So I think Merlin is a card that a lot of people are going to try and build decks around. And I really hope that those decks are good and sweet because this is the type of card I love. But it is also the type of card I'm very bad at building with. Well, I don't look. There's already a few things that this works with, right? Doctor Facilier, uh, seven drop. Uh, it works with uh, four drop Mickey Mouse and Amethyst that does the brooms. It also works with Befuddle. You know, you can bounce mm -hmm. your own things with Befuddle. And so, there's already a couple ways that you can utilize this to gain some extra lore. But that doesn't take into consideration that down the line we may get ways to ready your characters that allow them to quest again. And mm -hmm. at the very least, you know, I think that there might be a way for you to massively return all characters to the, to your hand. Like maybe at some point they make a five cost uh, action that returns all characters that cost three or less to their owner's hands. And if you do that with Merlin, suddenly you're gaining six lore by just for questing one time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the current combos I kind of see with this and would love if we could set up are Merlin in an Emerald deck where you get Mother Knows Best and Genie on the job and you can pick up your own shifted character because then that's two characters returning to your hand. Whoa, that's cool. Yeah, that's that's where my brain starts to go. Um, obviously that, granted, I guess uh, Emerald Amethyst is actually one of the more aggressive color pairs too. Yeah, it um, is. That definitely could be, you know, something there. It's a deck that wants to play Befuddle and stuff too. I mean, at the very least, I, I think uh, a one five one, you know, is not the best in the world. But there's just some spots where it can quest for two or three. Maybe that's worth something in the future. I think this is the one to just keep your eye out for. There, there's going to be things to pair with it uh, at some point. I'm sure. Absolutely. All right. Next up, we got Winnie the Pooh, the Honey Wizard. This is a five cost amethyst inkable. It's a five five for five. That's enormous, and it quests for two, but. 
No abilities. This is maybe the biggest, best vanilla character we've seen so far. Yeah, so I actually am kind of interested in this card. Same. Um, we talked about it briefly last week on the episode. Um, I actually have been playing Cerberus in a lot of my steel decks. Right. And I've actually even been, you know, dabbling with Kronk. You know, six cost inkable, six, six, the quest for two. And I typically end up playing Cerberus. And it's it's not because of the lore count. It's because of the cost. Right. You know, and I don't know how necessary that six point of willpower is where that second point of lore is huge. No, for sure. Um, I mean, obviously, they're in different colors, but I just think it's great that Amethyst has something of this sizing for that turn, because like in, you know, I think the one is going to be fighting with the most is the five cost queen from Amethyst that uh, taps to draw a card. And that, you know, I think is maybe a better card than this in like a control deck. But if you're trying to be more aggressive, not only is this card a way for you to consistently like challenge some of your opponent's weaker characters, but it quests for two and it's right on curve. So uh, I'm definitely looking forward to, to trying this at least. Uh, you know, it's it's not special because it doesn't have a cool ability. And almost every single character that's worth its nuts and bolts either costs you know, two or three and is enormous for its size or it has a, an awesome ability. So it's, it's nice to see these kind of vanilla uh, characters down the line that have just like much bigger sizing. And we're just going to see if they can punch through. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think these cards have kind of flown under the radar with how good Cerberus has been when I've been playing it. And, you know, I've been, you know, like I said, dabbling with Crunk now too. Those cards have impressed by a lot. And kind of similar to Maui where Maui is just those stats plus, you know, keywords that lets him trade off really quickly, but it, it the stats really do matter. And I, I think that's something we maybe have underexplored so far. Yeah. I mean, we're all focused on how much do you quest for? Right. And uh, I'm a big fan of, you know, the, what's it called? The dresser. Oh my God. The three, four and amethyst, the three cost three, four. I forgot. No, nah. is it broke? I thought it was. Uh, anyway, there's just three cost three fours all over the place in this game, and they don't see that much play. And I think that maybe they should see more play because they're great at handling things like uh, posing three drops. You know, a three four is just the biggest you're going to get for a three drop and outside of having uh, more strength, you know. Yeah, absolutely. I think those cards also should see a lot more play in Rapunzel decks in general. Yeah, you know, high, I, I don't think enough people great. look at them when they are playing Rapunzel decks. Um, one of the cards that I'm most afraid of when people play it is Mr. Smee, which is just Smee. such an innocuous card, but they're going to draw a million cards off their Smee. Yeah. It's terrifying. <laughs> Dude, Smee's great. It's got such, it's a two five, right? It's huge. Yep. All right. Next up, we're going to be moving on to I'm stuck. This is a uh, one cost inkable amethyst action. Uh, character on the card is Winnie the Pooh stuck in a hole trying to get out. Classic Winnie the Pooh scenario. Uh, this, the action says, chosen exerted character can't ready at the start of their next turn. We have a term for this in Magic. And uh, in Magic, it's called, well, it's called one of two things. It's either stun or it's freeze. And what we're basically doing is that we're taking a character that's already been activated on the previous turn. And for one... 
we're going to make sure that it doesn't do anything next turn. Uh, that's not like that good of a card in general, but at only one cost and inkable, you're going to have to compare this more so to something like Befuddle, which is also like a relatively weak spell, but in the right spots, it's certainly awesome, you know, especially considering that it's just going to be ink most of the time. Yeah, I think um, it. I do agree that you mostly should be comparing it to a card like Befuddle. Um, I think the thing that makes Befuddle pretty playable is that when Befuddle's good, it's good early, and then you just ink it in the mid-to-late game, where this card, you're always going to ink it early because it's not good until late. Mm -hmm. So it's going to be harder to line up just because you're going to kind of have to draw it and be like, oh, perfect. And then you play it, where there definitely might be some situations where, you know, you draw it in a weird tense situation in a mid-game and you're like, hmm, let me skip my ink for a turn or two and hold this just in case. Um, it's going to be a little bit harder to facilitate than a, than a befuddle, but I do think the effect is powerful and, you know, I'm going to throw one or two in a lot of my decks just to try it out once it's out. All right, why don't you give us the next one? All right, we have the Sorcerer's Spellbook. It costs three, is not inkable, and it has knowledge. Exert and one ink to gain one lore. Yeah, what do you think about that? Uh, so I think it's it's going to be too slow. Um, oh, don't give me that. Yeah, I mean, I really do. I think it's going to be too slow. We have a card that I think is somewhat similar in Sapphire already. The Eye of the Fates. Yeah, that, that, that card is cool. Yeah, I think that card is actually really good and a bit underplayed. Um, and that card is uh, four cost, inkable, uh, exert to give a character plus one lore for the turn. Yep. So it, in essence, does something very similar where it effectively taps, it exerts to give, to gain a lore. Um, the spellbook does it in a much more controlling archetype. So it's a little bit better facilitated for doing that. But at the cost of not being inkable, which I think is just going to hold this card way too far back against Magic Mirror, um, against Cauldron, and then there's Ursula and Elsa, not to mention whatever you're going to play from your other color. Mm -hmm. um, I think uninkables, especially in Amethyst, have the least room to you know fit in. So. All right, I'm going to posit an alternate universe where instead of playing Ursula's and Elsa's, you just don't. And the way you win is with four copies of this card and then just a ton of interaction, maybe characters that all have like Reckless and Rush, you know, your Gastons, your Mauis, and then you just focus on, you know, character beatdown instead of trying to quest and you just let Sorcerer Spellbook do most of the heavy lifting. I think that this is going to be like a four of, you know, I don't think this is going to be like a one of, but even as a one of, it's still pretty cool because you can get to spots in the Ruby Amethyst mirror that are just, you're not going to quest. You're not going to get to quest with your character. I played it a decent amount. You, you play something, it dies immediately one way or another. And they don't have an answer to Sorcerer Spellbook. And if you have two of them going, you're going to end the game pretty quickly. And that, while drawing a card off of the Magic Mirror is a bit stronger in a lot of spots, uh, as the game comes you know, to a, a halt, uh, as it normally does in those mirrors, something like Sorcerer Spellbook is just ideal as opposed to 
a character that's just going to get interacted with and never gain you any lore. It is perfect for the mirrors. Um, I do think those characters serve more function, like especially in Ruby Amethyst, your cards like Elsa and Ursula actually serve more as interaction and, you know, challenging, exerting their stuff, reducing their lore and drawing a card. That's actually their primary function. And then they just happen to have three lore stapled onto them. And then they happen to be how you win the game once you've already won the game. I mean, that's fair. I I don't know that I've played the Ruby Amethyst mirror. It doesn't really go down like that too much. But against the other matchups, I definitely think that that's true. I've played a ton against Ruby Amethyst where I thought I was very close to winning and then I get hit with a be prepared and then Ursula drains my lore and then they pocket watch a seven drop Aladdin and eat and gain some more lore and take my lore away. And like, yeah, I think that that's true. But that. The, the Ruby Amethyst Mirror is literally just characters that come down and kill your opponent's character every single turn. Spells that kill your opponent's character every single turn. And I just think Spellbook is just a way to, to break through. It might not work. It might be really bad against other matchups. If there ever is a such thing as a sideboard in this game, I think that this card could be incredible for those mirror matches. But I digress. I think the card is... Yeah, 100% agreed on the sideboard. I think it is probably one of the best cards you could play for the mirror. I just think that it's kind of bad. It's like stage else, three. It's like a stage yeah. three mirror card or whatever. It's just the mirror is yeah, exactly. annoying and, and it's just like a super late game mirror card. Uh, one place where I, I want to compare this to, for those of you who play Magic the Gathering, this card reminds me a lot of Millstone. Millstone That's what came to my mind when I saw the card too. Yeah, Millstone's a two-cost artifact in Magic that spends two and tap to mill your opponent for two cards. And in a 60-card deck, that means it essentially deals them... 0.75 damage or whatever, just like not very much damage for two and activate. And the whole goal of the of the deck is to essentially win without having to play creatures. And I think Sorcerer Spellbook is very similar in that regard. And while you can still play characters to help quest and to get you up to 20, I just think it's really sweet that they made a card that means that you don't have to play characters in your deck to win. That's all. Yeah, agreed. All right, I'll do the next one. This one is one everyone's talking about. This is uh, Bell Hidden Archer. Bell Hidden Archer is a five cost non inkable 3 3 out of Emerald, and it quests for three. It has Shift 3, which means you can pay three and put it on top of another character named Bell, and there's a couple of different Bells. Uh, and it has the ability Thorny Arrows. When this character is challenged, the challenging character's player discards all cards in their hands. All right, I'll start. So earlier. Uh, we were talking about the new queen and how her ability basically says your opponent is not going to quest. If they do, they're going to get smushed. Bell is kind of the opposite. And Bell says, you're not going to challenge me or you're going to get squished. And so what really is, is she kind of has evasive, right? Like your opponents can't really challenge her without losing the game on the spot, which means that she basically can't be challenged until one of two things are, are met. Um, you're going to die and you have to challenge it. Or... Uh, you empty your hand. The third option is discard your hand when you're pretty low on cards already. You've mostly emptied your stuff. Or you target it with some sort of direct removal like Dragon's Fire or Smash. Smash is the big uh, hit on this card. Yeah, completely agree. I think this card is really cool. Same. And really good. Um, it does kind of have... It's like... It's their favorite thing to put on Emerald cards, which is just five cost uninkable. 
Yeah, it's look, we, we haven't talked about it too much yet, but there's certainly this thing in magic that happens all the time. Uh, we talk about cards sitting on top of other cards where when they're very similar and what they do and how they operate, but they have the exact same cost as another card. Oftentimes you're just put in a spot where you have to choose between two things that are relatively similar. And one of those things is just clearly better than the other. And in this instance, I think Cusco is better than Bell Hidden Archer because it has Ward. And in the places where your opponents are most likely to be able to deal with Cusco, you know, they're going to be uh, attacking it. And, and I think that, you know, we've already shown that that uh, Emerald is great at preventing your opponent from attacking your stuff via Mother Knows Best. Your splash color often has uh, Dragon's Fire or uh, Let It Go as ex- additional pieces of interaction. You have Genie on the job. And so I, I think that having characters with Ward is significantly stronger than this. Your opponents already don't really want to challenge your stuff because so many of the Emerald characters have a punish for challenging. Yeah, absolutely. I... I think I personally will actually still play this card a lot. Yeah, um, I want to try it for sure. A lot of my Cusco Mad Hatter decks are Amber base, and I really want to be playing just in time. But yeah. I didn't have the density yeah. of strong five drops to put in, and you know that's where it's almost a benefit that I have a bunch of cards sitting on top <laughs> of each other. Is that's that true. I can just be really redundant and play a bunch of just in times because I'm always going to have a sweet five drop to put in. No, that's definitely the uh, the upside of having a bunch of five cost uninkables, as they all work with the uninkable just in time. <laughs> yeah, it's just great deck building. All right, next up, this is the new Flynn Rider. Why don't you tell us about him? Yeah, so it's funny. This is a card I'm actually very excited for. Ooh, I just saw it on the spoiler. But so it's one cost inkable, one strength, three willpower, quests for one, no other abilities. Look. How many characters in the game already exist? Uh, one cost, inkable, one three. I believe there's two of them. Yeah, yep. it's Minnie Mouse uh, from Ruby, and I want to say it's Olaf from Amethyst. Correct. And those two characters are not really seen as playable right now, but that doesn't mean that they won't be playable down the line. It also doesn't mean that they're actually unplayable. It just means that we haven't figured out the best ways to utilize them yet, but one of the cards that are uh, that I really love in Emerald is the two-drop Megara. Uh, giving something plus two strength uh, on a two-drop doesn't actually come up that much uh, as far as like being great, but it's inkable, which is nice. But when you play stuff like Flynn Rider as your one-drop, and your opponent's on the play and they play Goon and you play Flynn Rider, if they go to quests on turn, turn number two, Flynn Rider's going to chew them out with Meg. Yeah, so I'm going to push back on you just a little bit about those two cards, Minnie and Olaf, not being good. The reason they're not good is because they are in two of the most controlling colors, mm. the slowest colors in the game, where this Flynn Rider is in one of the most aggressive colors. Okay, so and even though it's know, a 1-3, it sounds like it's an aggressive card and not a defensive card. Yeah, so this is one of my more fun things that I absolutely love about Lorcana in general, is... I know you're big on goon theory, the the theory that you posited, right? The one three whoa, theory. Whoa, whoa, whoa. You can't just drop goon theory and not give people a brief a brief right, understanding. Why don't you give us a brief rundown okay, for the people, so, and then I'll give you the one three theory. The idea behind goon theory is that your opponents are going to play stuff sometimes that are cheap, 
and they're going to be very threatening. Uh, one cost Lilo, one cost Maleficent. These are cards that quest for two. If your opponent plays one on the play on turn one, and you have no way to interact with it on the first three turns, you've essentially already lost the game. And so I posited a while back in an article uh, called Goon Theory, where every deck should be playing at least four goons, and in some instances should be playing six or eight. Uh, they're inkable. Uh, I think they go in a lot of different decks for that reason alone. But also, you just need to be able to interact with your opponent's stuff, and there's not a whole lot of one-cost cards that do that, except for goons. Exactly. And so the next layer of that is I agree with you completely don't get me wrong i think goons are more of a defensive card yes right and that's what your whole theory is positing is that you know your opponent may be hyper aggressive you need to put goons in your deck so that you can defend yourself when you're on the draw and so what flynn rider does and the other one cause one threes is they are an aggressive card just like lilo because you play, I play this on turn one, and then you play your goon to defend yourself, right? Right, and then you, I just can't, right? Without it, help, I can't exactly. challenge. So when I quest, you get to challenge me, and I live, so I get to quest again. Where if I just played a goon of my own to be aggressive, trade. we just trade. Right. So I only get one lore out of the exchange, where with a 1-3, you still get your result of trading, but I still get my two lore... And so I got the same amount of lore I would have out of my Lilo, but I traded with your goon versus just having my thing die and your goon living. Yeah, I think that's a great point. That's one that I hadn't really thought about too much. Uh, I As more characters get printed with higher willpower, we might see more cards like Megara actually uh, see more play. I know that uh, Ruby, is it Ruby or Emerald? Uh, one of the colors in the starter deck comes with an item uh, that gives plus one attack to one of your characters just by exerting it. And if it's an Aladdin character, you get plus two. I can't remember the name of the card, but it's, I believe the card is Scimitar and it is Emerald. Okay. So Scimitar is something that like you can use to make a goon trade up on a, a three willpower character, but when I'm having to play two different cards to pair up to fight off a one drop, you know, before it gains too much lore, that's pretty scary. But I, I really like where your head's at on this. I think that maybe uh, we end up playing, um, you know, Emerald Amethyst Aggro, where we get two of those and we get the one cost Maleficent quest for two. Uh, you could play it alongside Ruby and get the Minnie Mouse that also quests for one that's a one three. And then uh, th those can just be your primary early aggressive characters uh, because they fend off goons. Like you said, that's actually super cool. Yeah, so um, I think actually most importantly, this makes it so I don't feel the need to be playing Ruby or Amethyst with my Emerald mm. deck. I can just put this in my deck that already wanted to be Emerald Amber and have a 1-3 now. And be aggressive. Exactly. Right. Perfect. And I don't have to play, you know, Stitch on turn one, um, even though I'm, you know, I probably won't even play Stitch Rockstar. You know, I was only playing that because I already had some Stitches in my deck. Because I needed more one drops, but now I have this extra Flynn Rider. Ah, don't you be talking smack about no Stitch Rockstar. It's going in every Amber deck that I play. Don't you worry. <laughs> don't you worry about that. <laughs> All right, let's move on. Uh, the next card we're going to be taking a look at is Bounce. This is a two cost Emerald Uninkable. 
Uh, and then it says, return a chosen character of yours to your hand to return another chosen character to their player's hand. So this might be one of those cards that works well with the new Merlin, where you can bounce your own character and your opponent's character. Uh, in Magic, there's a card very similar to this in blue, and it's called Appeal from Reality. And it was one of my favorite cards ever printed because of some cool combat tricks you could do with it. But... Uh, all in all, you know, you're just going to be using bounce to stall your opponent out a little bit, but you're also going to be using it with your own stuff to reset uh, abilities that come into play or reset damage that's already on your characters. Yeah, this is uh, this makes me want to do the pick up my shifted thing even more. Yeah, you know, we if we had like a really really good come into play ability on a shift thing, maybe you even shift onto the same thing twice and then pick up three things and mm -hmm. go off with your Merlin. You know, this This is what gets my gears turning, you know? Yeah, that, I don't think that one's going to be, like, a super big game changer. Uh, I mean, it could be down the line if there's enough one-drops that have cool abilities where you can afford to play something on one and then bounce it on two. Uh, I know that uh, when I started playing early on, I played against uh, one of the owners of Apex Gaming. I played against Taron Huck uh, in some fun games last time we were visiting, and he was using Befuddled, essentially, to protect his one-drop Lelos and Maleficence to kind of reset them. And this card can do something very similar to that while interacting with your opponent's stuff and keeping them off balance as well. And we know that Emerald is pretty solid already at interacting with characters by bouncing them. Yeah, that's that's really good to know or like to note that you can do that like quest with your Lilo, pick it up with bounce, bounce their thing so they can't challenge your other thing. Um that's really good. Or you can um, just recast your Lilo and they, you know, they just have a hard time challenging it because it's readied. Yeah, that's true too. Um then also you could do this with like Maleficent, the three cost. <laughs> and you know, yeah. kind of go off where you get to draw a card extra. Uh, if only yeah, if only bounce sweet. was a song, it'd be sick. That would be sweet. Um, one thing I actually want to point out, um, just in general, from a competitive aspect, is inkables versus non-inkables has been this hotly debated topic of you're crazy if you have 18 uninkables. Yeah. Which I think is generally true if you're playing like a control deck where you need to hit your ink every turn for the yes. first like 10 turns. Which is funny because those are usually the decks that have the most non-inkables. But well, that's the balancing deck. mechanic, man. They, they've they really done yeah. a great job, I think, of putting some of the more powerful or unique cards have that drawback. One thing I love, I love that nine cost Maleficent is inkable. I never have a fear of putting four in my deck. And yep. it's it's such an incredible late game card. But early game, it's just ink. And yep. that's not true for a lot of the other finishers in a lot of the other colors. Yep. But my main point was that in a very very aggressive deck where you are not going to be like you have four Cusco's in your deck as your only high end you don't need that much ink you yeah. know you could get away with 20 uninkables pretty easily i think maybe down the line you're gonna don't have to show me, me you're gonna have to show don't me that deck me on that but you're I, gonna I have to show that to me <laughs> i mean just think about it from like magic where you know oh, in your your mono red aggressive deck yeah. that had you know Thundermaw Hellkite is your only five drop, you know, you'd still play 20, 22 lands. That's fair. But uh, the fact that all these cards are split cards means that uh, things are a little different. I get what you're saying. and I, I, I agree. Th I agree. But down you know, the line, I, I think 20 is a lot. I don't think people understand how much 15 is. 
You know, pe- people keep getting like, you know, screwed on ink or whatever. And they're like, ah, I'm getting so unlucky. No, you're not. You're building your deck bad. Maybe maybe we could do a whole discussion or video about that in the future. Yeah, maybe. I think a lot of that actually goes back to your mulligan decision. Sure. Where just baseline, if you know your deck has a lot of non-inkables, you should never be mulliganing cards that are inkable in your opening hand. <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Because that's how you get set up for failure of like, oh yeah, oh, I'm just I got, gonna, oh, I I'm drew mulligan four uninkables. That's so unlucky. Yeah, I'm gonna I'm gonna mulligan basically my whole hand so that I can find you know a good a better hand, and then oh, I drew five non-inkables in my eighteen non-inkable deck. How do I? I can't even play the game. Yeah. All right, moving on to the next card. We're gonna be moving into Ruby now. Uh, the first up is going to be Raya, Warrior of Kumandra. She's a four-cost Ruby inkable character. Uh, she's 5-3, quest for one. Uh, I believe that there's a card that is exactly this already. Correct me if I'm wrong. And that's uh, the Scar, the four-cost Scar from Ruby is already the exact same. Yes, the only uh, notable, notable changes are the type line of Storyborn Hero Princess versus mm-hmm. Villain uh and i don't know what else scar uh, is, i think actually. floodborne i think scar is floodborne okay. or at least uh, maybe the a drops floodborne i don't know yeah it's probably storyborne and then villain um sure but sure. yeah this there's not much to say you know it's effectively a functional reprint this card might work well with moana and maybe move Look, on at some point don't but. don't give me the functional reprint thing that's not true I, every character that has a name that's like a main character from a movie there's going to be shifts. Oh. There's going to be shifts for that at some point, and so oh, they're just going to be stronger, or weak based on the shifts above them. And we haven't seen the the bigger iteration of Kaya, but our Raya, excuse me, uh, from Raya and the Last Dragon. And um, once we do, though, we'll have much better context on whether or not this card is good. But for now, yeah, it's that's it's true. That's yeah, that's not something I had even considered. Um, that's definitely a big thing to keep an eye on. That was one um, big part of Goon Theory that I made sure that everyone understood is that. Stitch is the best goon because Stitch, oh, yeah, absolutely. Stitch is the only goon that has a shift and for now, for now. and maybe well, that changes, be, but yeah, I, I doubt goons will get a shift, but <laughs> <laughs> that would be sweet. Yeah. All right. Your turn on this one. Let's do the dinner bell. Ring, All ring, right. Ring. We got the dinner bell. Yeah. Four cost uninkable. You know what happens? <laughs> do <Exert> I? And, <laughs> do you? I don't know. We're going to find out though. It's uh, two and exert for draw cards equal to the damage on chosen character of yours, then banish them. I'm pretty sure this means they're eating them, right? They're just eating. That's what you know what happens. They're just eating the oh, character. Man. That's yeah, dark. So, yeah, that that's pretty dark for a Disney game. Yeah, I agree. I don't even know what this is from, but it's pretty terrifying. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, to be fair, think, most of the characters are made of meat. You know, they're all made of animals and stuff, right? Yeah, yeah, they are. All right, Hannibal. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah, I, I do think this card could be pretty sweet with, like, specifically Maui. Um, that's something I've dabbled with a little bit recently. Yeah. On my quest for Surfer Stitch decks was I played some Ruby Amber, and Rapunzel plus Maui is a heck of a combo. Yeah, and, I was actually you know, thinking this would be perfect in the same decks that want Rapunzel because they're very similar in not only in what you're trying to target, but also in what they do, just drawing cards. Yeah, I, I do. I While I do agree, I think you might run into enough of a tension of it might be hard enough to set up Rapunzel in the first part. And Rapunzel is already so powerful that they're going to be trying to play around that, where in most of your Ruby decks, 
if you aren't Amber, they aren't even going to have that on their radar. Yeah, I think we can move on from this one. It's got some yeah. some gross background. I don't think it's very good, but <laughs> it's fine. All right, next up, we're going to do one of two new Cogsworths. This is a five-cost inkable. This is Cogworth Grandfather Clock. Cogworth is a 2-5, quest for two, and it has shift three. You may pay three and then shift onto another character named Cogsworth. Cogsworth has ward, which means you can't be targeted except a challenge. And then the ability Unwind. Your other characters gain Resist 1. Resist is a new ability that says uh, anything that would deal a damage to a character with Resist deals less damage based on the Resist cost. So in this one, Resist 1 means everything that deals damage to Cogsworth will be minus 1. Yeah, I think uh, really quick, just because it's next on the list anyway, it's important when we review this card to just do the new Cogsworth that goes with it. Which is oh, yeah, a two ahead. cost, yeah, two cost inkable, uh, two strength, three willpower, uh, quest for one, and it has wait a minute. Your characters with reckless gain exert to gain one more. Um, I mean, that's pretty cool, man. I, you know, I, I've been looking for some more reasons to play Gaston, the two drop from Ruby, and mm-hmm. that and Maui together in a Sapphire deck with Cogsworth. You know, this is a card that's pretty reasonable on stats, two, three for two inkable which is nice and the ability is just upside and it lets you play the card we were just talking about the bigger version of cogsworth the grandfather clock so yeah absolutely i think these two cards are just going to be a package in most sapphire decks moving forward um i think you'll kind of see them supplant um aurora two and aurora five in most sapphire decks um the Aurora package kind of always had some tension of, you know, you had a two cost two, two that quested for two, which is a good card, but then it's you're being, not really but you're gaining. aggressive and you're not, and it doesn't challenge well and it gets traded with goons. Exactly. And then when you shift it and upgrade it, you don't gain that extra lore. You just gain the stats, right? Which is, it just, it feels weird to do it that way. Where yeah. Part of the shift is always, are you gaining some extra lore? Because if you're having to exactly. essentially eat the character that's underneath, you have to have a payoff. And the, yep. the unwind payoff, your other characters having resist one is phenomenal because it works on offense and defense. And so if you can challenge that turn, everything that you challenge is going to deal one less damage to all your stuff. Yep. And then also just an inverse of the five cost Aurora is Cogsworth has ward instead of giving everything else ward. Yep. So that your your shift thing is actually more protected. And it is the most important thing because it has the ability that's being granted to everything else. So exactly. I, I'm completely on board. I think this Cogsworth package is going to be maybe something that helps bring Sapphire back into the fold. Sapphire, I think, is currently maybe the worst color so far in the game. You know, I, in initial testing, everyone was super high on uh, Bell Strange was special because, you know, it was all about ramping and people like ramping. And they realized that the more time they spend ramping, the more time your opponent has to just bury you on, on the table. And uh, something like Cogsworth uh, combo, the grandfather clock, just feels like it's going to smush some people in some really tight spots. I'll be really interested to see how Sapphire uses these two. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next up, we're going to be talking about uh, Gaston, Intellectual Powerhouse. Hit me. All righty, six cost, uninkable, common trend for a lot of these cards, it seems. Uh, he he is a 4-4, quest for three, has shift four onto your other Gastons. And then Developed Brain. Whenever you play this character, look at the top three cards of your deck. 
You may put one into your hand, put the rest on the bottom of in any order. So this is already, uh, I think, fusing Sapphire and Ruby, uh, not only with Gaston, but also with the grandfather clocks we were just looking at. Being able to give the two-drop Gaston the ability to quest makes it not have to be reckless and, and run headfirst into something. And the six-drop Gaston allows you to shift onto it, too. And so you're basically getting two Sapphire cards to pair it really well with a two-cost Ruby card. And I, I would love to see that deck. Yeah, absolutely. And also one of the things historically that Ruby Sapphire has struggled with is the lack of card advantage um, provided because right. neither color really has a strong card advantage package or engine. I mean, the one um, so that just uh, behind in a lot of the games. one that Sapphire has is uh, the six drop Robin Hood, which yep. in my experience does not trigger very often. Yeah, it only really triggers against the decks that are really good at drawing a lot of cards. Yeah. And then just getting one off your 4-4 four, four usually isn't enough to make a big enough impact. Um, where this Gaston, you know, you can shift it so it can come down really early. Quest, quest for three. For ton. Yeah. And it also replaces your your reckless Gaston that, you know, you played on two and then your opponent kind of maybe just, especially if they're a more card advantage based deck, they may have just skipped playing a threat like I did against you in our video our versus video and you know then you kind of get to embarrass them for skipping on the board you just play down this huge threat that also already replaced itself and better than drawing a card it found the best card for you in your top three yeah for sure and if you're pairing it with ruby i mean maybe that's be prepared maybe that's dragon's fire you know you're just going to be facing off maybe against some interaction on the following turn. And so if you're not ready to beat Gaston when it comes down, chances are you're not going to be able to beat it when they get to untap with it either. You're definitely not going to be able to beat it when they get a second one off the first one. Yeah, that's true. All right. Very excited about the Sapphire cards so far in the set. Looking forward to more for sure. Uh, we're going to be moving into the last color now. This is steel. There's a few awesome steel cards that I definitely want to talk about. The first one is going to be Cinderella Stouthearted. This is a seven cost steel inkable, five, five, and a quest for three. A shift for five on top of another Cinderella. And itself has resist two, which means that anything that deals damage to it is minus two. And the ability, the singing sword, whenever you play a song, this character may challenge ready characters this turn. So you get to untap with Cinderella Stouthearted or you shift. The turn where you shift, you can use it to sing something and then your other characters can challenge ready characters or you shift, play a song with another character like Ariel, uh, Spectacular Singer, and then you use Cinderella to go straight at your opponent's readied characters and resist two means that your Cinderella is very unlikely to die. Yeah, so far I think this is the best card spoiled. Um, this card is incredible. <laughs> I mean, it's a seven drop. Like you got to be enormous if you don't draw a card. Yeah, but <laughs> this card is enormous. Yeah, and, it is. And some, you know, like this card. Even if you kind of discount resist, it's basically like a five seven, but it's way better than that. Because whenever you challenge something that has three strength, it's only taking one damage. Yeah, and it's going to be really hard for your opponents to gang up on it. And when I play against aggressive strategies, something like Cinderella Stouthearted is going to be nightmarish because you just have to ignore it. 
I will say this. I don't think this is scarier to play against than Six Drop Tinkerbell if I'm playing an aggressive deck. But it's just another thing that compounds Steel's advantage against those aggressive strategies. And while Cinderella does cost seven, I think that it's going to be shifted quite a bit and it's going to do some major damage when it does. Yeah, absolutely. I, I actually think this card is more impactful for the mid-rangey kind of games Same. than against like hyper-aggressive decks where the to trade with this card one-on-one in combat it takes seven strength that's so much is that what what has seven strength seven drop maleficent or nine drop maleficent's like the only thing and so there's a couple other cards you can kind of reach for that don't see a ton of competitive play currently but this card is a juggernaut in combat yeah Um, seems very difficult to have to kill it outside of combat um even if you Elsa it, it's just going to ready because there's no way you're going to kill it in combat <laughs> while it's while it's exerted. Yeah. Um, a card I would really like to pair this with maybe is actually the Aurora we were talking about that Ooh. you know we thought might be getting supplanted, but Give giving ward. this ward right. is huge. I agree with that. And that was really something I was looking uh, to make the Aurora good was to give something relevant ward because it itself doesn't have ward. And so your opponent's removal spells almost always go at the Aurora. And I don't think that the uh, Sapphire decks are aggressive enough to make that worthwhile. But I also don't think that they have anything at the top end worth protecting. And so you always have to dip into other colors to find those things. And this Cinderella started, like you said, it doesn't gain a card when it comes into play, but it is a huge presence on the table. And so if you are able to protect it with ward, I think that's money. Absolutely. All right. Very cool card. Excited to try it out and steal mid range. Next up is maybe my favorite card that's been previewed thus far is the Prince who never gives up. This is a three cost inkable steel one, three it quests for two, which is huge and has bodyguard. So when it, uh, you may, Enter it exerted. An opposing character who challenges one of your characters must choose one with bodyguard if able. And then it has resist one. And so that means that your opponent's Rafikis are not going to kill this thing. Yeah, it is really good against Rafiki. It is kind of embarrassing against Gaston. That's true. But I mean, look, Gaston is is one of those cards that's going to trade one for one against most stuff. And if you have the Prince as your play for the turn, just don't play it, exert it. You know, they have to yep. challenge your goon or whatever. And I think that trading a Gaston for a goon is fine. It's, it's hard for your opponent to navigate the game in such a way where Gaston kills what they want it to kill if the opponent knows what they're doing and plays their cards accordingly. And so you'll see Gaston be something people usually cast not on turn two, but usually on like turn four or five to set up for like a two sequence trade so that they can pick and choose how their reckless character attacks. Yeah, exactly. Um, I've actually been using pocket watch a lot to, you know, basically turn my Gaston's into mini Maui's. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. That's pretty sweet. But yeah, I, I do think this Prince is really good. Um, I think it's going to be really good to have a bodyguard that has a relevant threat that it presents on the yeah, table. Questing for that's, two is a big deal. Yeah, that's the the one thing Simba doesn't do really well, right? Is and the three cost Hercules. The three cost Hercules yeah, exactly. is like unsung hero of a lot of my decks because it trading straight up with Rafiki means that it's essentially protecting the the smaller things. And yep. this, you know, does something pretty similar. But like you said, quest for two, big deal. Right, and also, I mean, this doesn't trade with Rafiki, but it makes the Rafiki attack it twice. And sure, the Rafiki lives, but you 
made it attack you once and you got two lore and all your other things were protected for two turns. Right. Which honestly might be better than trading with Rafiki. No, I agree. All right. Last up is the last card we're going to be talking about today from Rise of the Floodborne. This is uh, why don't you tell me? Tell me what it is. This is Tiana celebrating celebrating princess. She costs four, cannot be inked, has one strength, four willpower, quests for two, has resist two. And then she has what you give is what you get. While this character is exerted, and if you have no cards in your hand, opponents can't play actions. That's pretty good and aggressive deck, I gotta say. Yeah, uh, if you can empty your hand and then be confident that you are ahead with no hand, it's a strong card, for sure. Yeah, I don't want to talk too much about cards from Magic Gathering, but like, there's a long list of cards that we call Hay Bears, which are usually cheap characters that we utilize to suppress our opponent's ability to play Interaction. And uh, the interaction that we're usually fighting off are big sweeper effects, things that clear the board completely of our of our creatures. And in uh, in Lorcana, it's basically just uh, grab your sword and uh, be prepared. But there's a lot of other um, actions that this thing will shut down and make it extremely difficult for your opponent to do much of anything, specifically because your characters have resist on them now, which means that they're hard to challenge as well. Yeah, so I do think it's it, this card has a weird tension with Maui, specifically against Be Prepared decks, yep. where you don't necessarily want to be questing with this because then a Maui just punks it out, and then you're going to get Be Prepared the following turn. Maybe but, pair with some bodyguards. Yeah, may, maybe that's it, um, because then they can't you know use an action to break up your bodyguard synergy. Or you can just leave this ready, and it has pretty close to ward while you have no hand. Right. Um, because they can't play any actions. They have to play like a character, an item that targets it. Well, it does. It says while this character is exerted and you have no cards in oh, your hand. Oh, it's only while it's exerted. Yeah. I was thinking so, just while it's in play. Yeah, yep. you're, you're going to have to essentially put this vulnerable for a turn. But I think that if you pair this with Amber, you get, uh, you know, two cost Simba bodyguard, uh, Hercules, and the prince we just looked at as bodyguard. So you can have ways to keep it. Uh, from being challenged, which is nice. And then you also, by essentially shutting down all your opponent's actions, you're essentially giving all of your characters ward as well. Yeah. Very cool it's card. A sweet card for sure, yeah. Yeah, and I, I mean, Steel is one of the best uh, colors for helping to empty your hand. And I, I just, I see these types of cards just intermingling into my like Stitch Blitz deck I've been working on. So I, I'm just in love with Tiana Celebrating Princess. I think that card's awesome, so... All right, well, that is it for the previews for Rise of the Floodborne that we have so far. Uh, this is only, I believe it was 19 cards that we have previewed thus far. As we get more cards, we'll be talking about them on the podcast each week. Uh, but we're done for now. Uh, we will be moving on to our next, next segment, Harlan, and that's my favorite segment every week. And that's Card of the Week. What's your card of the week, Carlin? Well, it may not surprise anybody because I've mentioned it about a thousand times in this episode, <laughs> but it is Surfer Stitch. Oh, Stitch Carefree Surfer. Seven cost, four eight. Yeah, Stitch Surfer, uh, a pretty powerful one. Definitely uh, a favorite in some of the Amber mid range strategies. 
Uh, works really well with Rapunzel because you're just keeping all of your characters alive by by giving them some refreshes on their health. Uh, works really well in conjunction with you know all the princess stuff because they just have high willpower, so they stay around. Yeah, it's, yeah I, just give me them cards. <laughs> just give me more cards. That's all I want. Yeah. Uh, so what what is a deck that you've been working on uh, for uh, Stitch Rockstar just to give people so, an, a better idea? Yeah. So uh, I can I can maybe. Um, we can give you a, a link to one in the show description, and maybe we can get it up on the screen too. But I've been playing uh, an Amber Steel Stitch Surfer Stitch deck that has been my favorite so far of my Surfer Stitch decks. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're just kind of playing a little bit of just a full curve. You know, you got your your um, Captain Hooks and your Prince Eric's, your Rapunzels. You're just trying to play to the board exchange damage on characters rapunzel back up keep some characters in play play your stitches lots of cards in your hand uh you have you have forgotten me to um you know combat the more mid-rangey decks that card's a beating sometimes i gotta say that thing hurts yeah yeah that's one um i wish it was a song though man i wish it was something i could get with ariel it's not a song (laughs) (laughs) as somebody who's usually not playing amber yeah but uh yeah it's that's a card i've gotten really good at you know I'm going to start holding something or inking extra, you know, in the last week or so that that card's been a beating and a half in a couple of games. So. All right. Well, uh, my card of the week is also an Amber card, but it's not Stitch Carefree Surfer. It's not even a stitch at all. I know that's weird for me. Uh, My card of the week is Hades, Lord of the Underworld. Uh, This four cost three, two. It's not inkable. And therein lies the tension. But if it is one of the very few non inkables that you have in your deck, Hades, Lord of the Underworld is a great character to help refresh your early resources when your opponent challenges your stuff or is able to blast your characters off the table. Um, A second Hades getting the first Hades means that your opponent can essentially never stop the chain and until you decide to stop the chain yourself. And so, you know, I've had a lot of experiences with Hades thus far that were very, very positive. I've had a couple that were negative because it's not inkable, though. Yeah, so uh, I've been playing a lot with Hades in the Stitch decks, and I can't say enough good things about the card. Nice. Um, I definitely had reservations about it being non-inkable. But the, one of the beauties of Amber, especially if you're playing Amber Steel, is it, it's really easy to have a low non-inkable count. Right. There's a, a ton of great cards that are inkable. And also another an added bonus of Hades that I don't think most people consider, especially your first one, is you just play it on four and pick up your stitch or whatever that, that died earlier and traded, and then you just have your ink for the next turn. And it's yeah. basically, you know, it's a, a four cost three two draw card, which is crazy good. No, for sure. Uh, it's one of the things I like most about the four drop Mickey Mouse that works with brooms because sometimes your brooms run in, they trade for something and they come back to your hand and hey, you got an ink to play for the I turn. Think, yeah. Yeah. So definitely feel you on that. But that's our card of the week. Well, folks, uh, that's going to do it for this episode of the Lost Boys podcast. Make sure to check out our sponsor, Games and Comics Paradise. 
They're a game store out of Fairfax, Virginia. Uh, they are your one-stop shop for all things in the trading card game space, from singles to sleeves, anything you need for Magic Gathering, Lorcana, Yu-Gi-Oh! Make sure to check out Games and Comics Paradise, and you can check out their website at gcparadise.com. Thank you so much for Harlan for talking with me today about these new cards from Rise of the Floodborne. I think they're sweet. I'm very excited to play with them. Yeah, I'm, I'm super hyped for the second set to come out. I just I love having more cards. You know, it just makes building decks and playing games so much more fun. Now, I'll say this. Uh, we're going to be able to use these cards. We're actually already able to use them on Pixelborn right now. It's kind of a, a bastardized format because it's just like not real because it's only 19 yep. new cards or whatever. But one thing that we can start doing next week is we can start playtesting decks with these new cards on Pixelborn and showing the people at home how well they play and what kinds of decks they'll be fitting into. And I think that'll be something really fun for us to do. Ooh, I'm, I'm down for that. All right, cool. All right, well, uh, thank you so much for uh, uh, Games of Comics Paradise for being our sponsor. Thanks to Harlan for uh, being the co-host and being awesome. We love you. And uh, that's going to do it. But shout out to uh, Apex Gaming for helping us put on the Lorcana Invitational. That's going to be on the October 20th weekend. We're going to have Invitational Qualifiers at their home store in Caldwell, Ohio on mm, September the 30th and October the 14th. And we're going to be broadcasting those live uh, for y'all to watch as well. And it uh, should be a lot of fun. Uh, but that's going to do it for this week's episode of the Lost Boys Podcast. For Holland Fear, I'm Tandy. Bangarang!